Let us pray. O Lord, even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. May the words of my mouth be your words this morning, and may they speak to each person here as you know that they need. Amen. Well, good morning to all of you who are here in person and those who are with us in spirit uh, electronically. Um, I'll tell you a little bit more during the announcements, but next Sunday, it's open for anybody who wants to come until we reach the limit of what we're allowed. But more about that later. Uh, before I start my message uh, this morning, I want to note that today is Gathcon Sunday. As part of the Anglican Church in North America, we at Christ Our Hope belong to this Gathcon movement, which is a global family of authentic Anglicans standing together to retain and restore the Bible to the heart of the Anglican communion. The mission of Gathcon is to guard the unchanging, transforming gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaim him to the world. The Gathcon movement began in 2008 when moral compromise, doctrinal error, and the collapse of biblical witness in parts of the Anglican communion have reached such a level that the leaders of the majority of the world's Anglicans felt it was necessary to take a united stand for truth. A crowd of more than a thousand witnesses, including primates, archbishops, bishops, clergy, and lay leaders gathered in Jerusalem for the first GAFCON uh, Global Anglican Future Conference. GAFCON is short for that. There have been two more GAFCONs since then. The last one was in 2018 in Israel. Uh, brought together nearly 2,000 uh, representatives from across the globe. The theme of the conference was proclaiming Christ faithfully to the nations. There was a further conference held in 2019 for those who, for political reasons, couldn't attend the one in Jerusalem. The bishop who ordained me was one of those who was not given a visa to go to, be, to Jerusalem. So this, this gathering was in Dubai. Um, for faithful Christians in restricted situations. Their final statement spoke powerfully of the sense of betrayal they have experienced when the very gospel for which they are suffering is being undermined and denied in other parts of the Anglican community. In your email this week, uh, there is a link to the GAFCON website. I hope each of you will take a few minutes, if you haven't already, to take a look at that. And, there's includes a little short two-minute video. You'll even see a little cameo appearance of our Bishop Ken uh, in that. So um, let's go to today's gospel, and let's be honest. And this is a difficult and challenging passage. But given the conditions in which we live today, we need to wrestle with our Lord's challenge to take up his cross and follow him. In my work with the church around the world, I receive frequent updates from countries where Christians are persecuted. 
Often these updates are about abuse that converts receive from their families. For example, just this Wednesday, this past Wednesday, I received a prayer alert for a 27-year-old woman in India who is being driven out of her village by her brother just because she'd chosen to follow Jesus. There's many examples like this. For example, last September, I received news of a family of new believers in Vietnam. They belong to an ethnic tribe that worships their ancestors. Earlier that year, Khan and his wife became followers of Christ. Two months later, when Khan's parents learned about this, they demanded that he renounce Christianity and return to his old beliefs. He was given three days to decide. But Khan decided that he was determined to follow Jesus and would not go back. So he and his wife and two daughters, ages one and three, were expelled from their village. They were not allowed to take any belongings except the clothes they were wearing. The family took refuge in the home of their pastor in a nearby village. There was an attempt for them to get back into their village. That didn't last very long. And uh, as far as I know now, they are still um, uh, not allowed back in their village. This is typical of the price Christians pay in many countries because they choose to follow our Lord. Some are physically beaten by family members for converting to Christianity. Occasionally, they're even killed. We should not be shocked because Jesus warned us that this would happen. For the last three Sundays, we've been exploring what it means to be a disciple and to go out and call others and make, go and make disciples. Let's remember what a disciple is. He's simply a student. A disciple studies under Jesus and learns to imitate him in his life and ministry. In today's gospel reading, Jesus challenges us to count the cost of being a disciple. In fact, the way he speaks about it, you might even wonder if he's trying to talk us out of being his followers. Last week we heard him say, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Not exactly what we would want or expect. In today's passage, Jesus says, Do not think I have come to bring peace on to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And that ought to give us pause. Didn't Jesus say in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God? But Jesus does not, and Jesus does promise peace. But it's not peace that the world wants. It's the peace with God, which, when we respond to God, produces peace with each other. At least that's the way it's supposed to work. So what is this sword that Jesus brings? I believe it is the word that he speaks. It is the word of God. It is this word that separates us from the rest of the world. And it is this word, this sword, that causes division. Jesus says, I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Again, doesn't this trouble you? 
What about the fifth commandment that tells us to honor our fathers and mothers? And yet, in today's gospel, in verse 37, we hear these words. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So, on the one hand, we're supposed to honor our fathers and mothers, and yet, on the other hand, we're supposed to hate our fathers and mothers? You see, while our Lord upholds the Ten Commandments, he also says that the two greatest commandments are first to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and second to love our neighbors as ourselves. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us that we are to even love our enemies. So how does this res relate to what Khan experienced last summer in Vietnam? <clears throat> or to the abuse so many other Christians receive from their families. Should Khan hate his parents for persecuting him and his family? Or should he love them? And then I'm reminded that Jesus said we should pray for those who persecute us, not hate them. It sounds a little confusing, doesn't it? Well, let's keep going in our gospel. Jesus says in verse 38, Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Elsewhere, Jesus says that a person who doesn't take up his cross cannot be my disciple. The twelve disciples had to be shocked with that image. Everyone knew what the cross meant. It was an instrument of torture and execution. What parent, what spouse... What family member wants to see a loved one carry a cross? That means they've been condemned to die. Maybe this is the reason Jesus divides families. We naturally want to do anything to protect the family member from suffering, especially when that suffering might be avoided. So, here's the point where Jesus challenges us. Do we obey him? Or is our primary loyalty, to, first of all, to our family? A few years ago, my wife and I were invited to a Muslim country where I was to be ordained as an Anglican priest. My wife's parents were worried. News from that country was not good. There were suicide bombers and attacks on police stations, schools, and churches. Clearly, it was dangerous, and they made their concerns known. Wouldn't it make sense to stay away from that country? Why take the risk? Joe and I had to have a serious talk. Should we respect her parents and do the safe thing for her daughter and me? Honestly, that was logical. If we had decided not to go, our loved ones would have understood and supported that logical decision. It wasn't easy to go against their wishes, but the issue was this. Was Jesus calling us to go? If so, we had to obey him, even if it meant risking our lives. So this begins to get to the heart of the issue. You see, family naturally wants what they think is best for us. As parents, we want our children to grow up and have a proper career and make enough money and maybe support us in our old age. But when Jesus calls someone to follow him, that disrupts those plans. 
I sometimes wonder what Mr. Zebedee thought when Jesus called his two sons, James and John, to drop their nets and follow him. Uh, we don't know Zebedee's reaction, but I can kind of imagine that he wasn't real pleased that his sons didn't even finish mending those nets. Who was going to help the family in the him in the family business? I suspect that maybe he wanted these boys to take over the business and support him and Mrs. Zebedee in their old age. Would Zebedee, at least for a moment, maybe have thought his sons hated him? So Jesus challenges the 12 disciples. You want to follow me? Then your parents and family are no longer your authority. We are to love Jesus above all else in this life. And when we do, then we are rightly able to love others, including our family. How do we love Jesus? We love him when we obey his teaching and his commands. You see, discipleship is not a program. It's not a course that we take. Discipleship is not a goal to be achieved. It's not a career choice that I make. It's a call by God to leave our plans, our agenda, our agenda, and follow our King. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his classic, The Cost of Discipleship, the call of Jesus frees us from all earthly ties and binds us to Jesus Christ alone. Now, I admit this is a risky business, even dangerous, because we don't know where Jesus will take us. You see, there's no negotiation with this king. We either obey or we walk away like the rich young ruler who couldn't do what Jesus asked. And that was to sell all he had and give the proceeds to the poor and then follow him. Can you imagine what his family would have thought if he liquidated the family fortune? I don't think they'd have been very pleased. So that's the challenge we face when we hear the words of our Lord. Now we're starting to understand what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus. Our epistle reading this morning from Romans reveals a little bit more. Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Jesus Christ and we were baptized into his death. There it is again. Discipleship requires that we die. We don't want to die. We naturally resist death. However, Paul reminds us that God didn't leave us dead. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Which brings us back to the words of Jesus, the punchline, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If we lose Christ and instead follow some human Messiah, we are not going to find true peace. We are not going to find where we fit in life. We are not going to learn our purpose in the great story that God is writing. So that's the seriousness of our challenge. Following Jesus means we are going to be like a sheep among wolves. It means our families may turn against us. 
It means we can't hold on to our life, our plans, our stuff. So, why should we follow this king? What's the payoff? And the disciples asked that same question. In Mark, Jesus answered them, saying, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive 100-fold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. When we lose our lives for Christ's sake, we actually gain far more than we lose. When we focus on the things of this world, we're thinking too small. There's something far greater opening up for us. It's called the kingdom of God. In this kingdom, family takes on a different and deeper meaning. As disciples of Jesus, we are adop adopted into a new family. Naturally, we pray that our biological family will be part of this greater family. However, the ties of the church family are ultimately stronger because they will last for eternity. A few years ago, I had lunch with Shabazz Bhatti in his office in Islamabad. Mr. Bhatti was Minister of Minorities for Pakistan's President Musharraf. As we talked that afternoon about what it meant for him to be the only Christian in Musharraf's cabinet, he told me something very interesting about his spiritual journey. He said that God had clearly revealed to him that he was not to marry and have children. Now in that culture that's extremely unusual, very countercultural. But Bhatti explained that he felt he needed to be free from any family obligation because of the danger of what God was calling him to. He mentioned that there had been several threats on his life, and he would not back down from his witness as a Christian and his defense of the rights of the minority communities in that country. He told me, I believe in Jesus Christ, who has given his own life for us. I am living for my community, and I will die to defend their rights. About a year later, a Bibi, a Christian mother of four, was accused by some women in her village of blasphemy against Islam and the Prophet Muhammad. Despite the lack of any evidence, she was condemned to die. The case brought much international attention, and Mr. Bhatti spoke out strongly against the verdict. Shortly afterwards, as he was driven from his home to his office, he was attacked by a car full of gunmen. They fired 25 bullets into his car, killing him. My friend demonstrated the commitment required by Jesus. He gave up his personal rights to have a family in order to advocate for his greater family as a Christian. You see, it's not enough that we just believe in Jesus. Following him means that we give up everything, our possessions, our plans, our family, and in return, we gain what we really long for. We obtain meaning in life. There is 
a greater and grander story that we participate in. We join a real family, a royal family, that includes, that can include even our biological family. And I can testify that when I truly surrendered totally to King Jesus 50 years ago, I gained far more than I lost. I think even as I'm speaking here of all the homes that we've stayed in, and I think of Jesus saying, multiplying the number of homes and the number of uh, relatives, all the homes we've stayed in, all the people that have become dear to us around the world, we have gained far more than we gave up. But there have been trials along the way too. There was a long period of what I call my wilderness when life was dry and my career was on hold and all I could read from the scriptures were the Psalms. I look back now and I see that God was preparing me for the unique work he called me to. I didn't really lose anything except, well, I lost some of my self-centered thinking and that wasn't bad. Each of us has a unique part in the story. And that's what Jesus is inviting us to, is to give up our own dreams, our own plans, and put them in God's hands and let him direct us. I close with another quote from Bonhoeffer. When, a man, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It is the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ, because only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. In fact, every command of Jesus is a call to die with all our affections and lusts. But don't be afraid of this death. It's actually a gift. It's how we find out who we really are and who we were created to be. This morning, as we come to the communion table, we should count the cost of following our Lord. But we should also realize that it's a price worth paying because Jesus paid the far greater price for us on the cross. As we eat the bread together this morning, let's remember that Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed so that we might be part of his family and have eternal life. All he asks in turn is that we die to our selfish lives and surrender everything to him. In that context, it's really not too much that he asks of us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have demonstrated your love for us by taking up your cross and dying for us so that we might have life. We realize, therefore, that you do not ask too much of us when you demand that we take up our cross and follow you. For in you, we find real life. So teach us, Lord, how to follow you fully, regardless of what our family or the world around us may say.